Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to answer four questions. The first question is on net metering. The next question is on bypass diodes. Then we have a question on solar and storage, the perfect combination. And finally, we have a question about Articles 480 in the National Electrical Code and Article 706 in the National Electrical Code. And so in the first net metering question, we're going to talk about why it is different in different places, whether or not you should feed energy back to the grid when you have an excess. And then the second question, we're going to be getting deeper into the bypass diodes and how those work, even a little bit on how half cell modules have parallel connections with the bypass diodes. And then our third question is why solar goes very well with energy storage systems. And finally, a question about the National Electrical Code. And we're talking about energy storage and why there's two different articles that fit this topic. There's Article 480 storage batteries and there's Article 706 energy storage systems and why we like Article 706 the best. And so, why don't you go to solarsean.com, that's solarshawn.com, and on with the show. Now, this question is from Abigail Timog, and she asks, So I'm curious, why would one not want to have the capability to get money and credits from the power company for excess power made from solar? That's a very good question, Abigail. So, people who have solar would love to get credit for electricity that they send back to the grid. In some cases, the utility does not want to pay the full price for electricity sent back to the grid. It is competition, after all, and the utility likes to have their monopoly for power. Different utilities have different policies, and in fact, many of the same utilities have different policies for different customers. In general, once a customer offsets all of their own electricity for a year, and then they produce more than they use in a year, the utility will usually not pay for the excess electricity sent back, since they don't have to, or they will pay a small amount, perhaps a price that they pay for their least expensive electricity source. I have heard of some people getting paid two cents per kilowatt hour for the extra electricity that they send back. In other places like Hawaii, where there is an abundance of solar project in an island setting, where they cannot send electricity to neighboring islands or states, they are not allowed to send back any electricity to the grid for newer projects. And the older projects are often grandfathered in. In this case, they will fill up their batteries during the middle of the day when the sun is bright and overhead, and then use the energy when they come home from work and the sun gets lower in the sky, or even at night. In some cases, they are allowed to export some of that solar energy into the battery at night. And it's possible, too, that they might be able to export some of their energy from the battery at night. It just depends. There's many different utilities. There's many different programs, even on the Hawaiian Islands. And remember, there are thousands of utilities and many thousands of rate schedules in the United States. So this is different for everybody. But we're just generalizing. Most people will have to pay something at the end of the year. However, those that made more than they used may just end up giving a gift to the utility. Merry Christmas, utility. Merry Christmas. There are also newer net metering policies that are not as favorable to customers, where they require new solar customers to be on a time-of-use rate 
where electricity is more expensive in the evenings. So, since you're not making much electricity in the evenings, then you end up paying more for the energy that you use and getting less credit for that noontime energy that you are sending back to the grid. Dang! And once again, there are thousands of rate schedules throughout the U.S. Some are better for solar than others, and the utilities are regulated, typically, by political appointees that make up the PUC, otherwise known as the Public Utilities Commission. Sometimes these appointees are accused of being in the pockets of utilities or other special interests. How could that be? People are just honest, at least the people listening to this podcast. So just to kind of sum it up, there's so many different utilities, but in some places still, you get perfect net metering where there's a flat rate and you get credited for the same price as electricity costs when you export. That's just like what I have, and I'm in California, and that's because my system is grandfathered in. That means we installed it when there was not a lot of solar on the grid, and it was a good incentive for us to have. Of course, it wouldn't be sustainable, and the grid would go bankrupt if everybody had these rates, and we made as much solar energy as we used. So that's why they have to change things around a little bit. Okay, thanks for that great question, Abigail. On to the next one. Okay, this question is from Abdul Jacobs. And I think it's gonna be a quick question. The question is, is the configuration of bypass diodes within a module standard across the industry or are there significant variances depending on the project type? Well, Abdul, it's pretty standard for most modules. Your typical configuration of bypass diodes and your typical 60 and 72 cell solar modules are three in a junction box. So that solar module is divided into three different parts. You typically have for a 60 cell module, six by 10 or for 72, six by 12 cells. And so you take those six and you divide that by three bypass diodes and you get two rows or columns or however you want to put it there. And then if you shade a cell or more than one cells in one of those rows or columns, depending if you're portrait or landscape, and let's say if you were landscape, they would be rows. That means going across vertically. And if you shade one or more cells in a group, the bypass diode kicks in and bypasses that group. Now we have something that's a little bit different, something called half cell modules. It's a little bit more difficult to explain without visuals since we're on a podcast, but pretty much what they do is they take one of those modules. So let's just say 72 cell modules because that's the average module in the whole world. And they will cut those in half. And so 72 times two equals 144. And so there's 144 half cells. Now with a half cell module, you see what looks like a stripe down the middle, just like a little bit of extra space down the middle. And that indicates where you're gonna end up having parallel connections. So you're gonna take 72 cells on one side. And so we'll count that two rows of 12, which gives us 24 cells, 24 connected on the upper left side of this landscape module, 24 connected on the right side, and they're connected in parallel and then there's one bypass diode to bypass all of those cells. And then we do that three times. And so while we're on the subject, we're talking about half cell modules. 
And so the reason that we have half cell modules is you know that equation V equals IR. So we know that equation for resistance, voltage equals current times resistance. And we can also say power equals voltage times current. Well, we throw those equations together and what ends up happening is we end up with less resistance if we have less current and half cells have less current. So we get some increases there. And that's just one of the many ways to increase the efficiency of a module. And so it just kicks it up a little bit, but there's more connections, there's more work, but they pretty much fit on the exact same format and they have similar voltage and current characteristics to their sister modules. So that's a 72 cell module and a 144 half cell module. They're very similar, just like a 60 cell module and a 120 half cell module. They're very similar as far as their characteristics of voltage and current go. And then one more thing about these half cells is in some instances, you can see that it's a little bit better for shading because of those parallel connections. But yeah, bypass diodes are important and they also are for safety. So before they had bypass diodes, if you put a whole bunch of solar modules in series and then you shaded one cell, that would turn into a resistive heater because of all that current trying to get through there and no alternate way to bypass that shaded cell and it could heat up and potentially cause a fire. So that's the safety reason that we have bypass diodes, but most people think of bypass diodes for an efficiency reason, because if you have shading, it bypasses the shaded cells. So we can make more power and power times time is energy and energy is money pretty much. Okay, and on to the next question. Okay, and this question is from John Saputo. Hey, John. And John's question is, how is battery technology impacting the implementation of solar? Good question, John. That's a short question, but might be a long answer because you could pretty much write a book on this one. Maybe a couple of books. Let's do it. Come on, you and me, John. Let's write some books. Okay, now here's the answer to this question for this podcast. Read the book later, like in a couple of years. Okay, as solar increases in penetration throughout the grid, we have an increased need for energy storage. When solar is less than 1% of the power going to the grid, like it was 10 years ago, and it still is in many places, and probably actually, for sure, most of the states, because solar hasn't taken off everywhere yet. So in those cases, when you're less than 1% of the power going into the grid, there's just not a need for energy storage since the grid can absorb that energy at all times. However, when solar energy becomes a significant part of the grid, as it is in Hawaii or Germany or Australia, for an extreme example, then there will be times around noon when the solar power will be greater than what the grid can take and perhaps greater than what people are using. In this case, we need to have energy storage to hold that noontime energy and save it for later in the day when the grid needs it. And when I mentioned places like Hawaii and Australia and Germany, I bet it's coming to California pretty quick. Hawaii, by the way, has the highest amount of solar energy per capita. So 
there's something called the duck curve. And I know we can't see it, we can't visualize right now, but let's close our eyes. So let's imagine the duck and the tail is going up to the left and then it sinks down in the middle of the day around noon. That's when you might think you might have too much energy on the grid. And then that head of the duck is when the sun is setting and everybody has everything turned on. So what we need to do is shift that energy from the middle of the day, from that noontime sun, and then bring that over there to decapitate the duck. Oh, no animals were hurt in the making of this podcast. So that's the duck curve. And just pretty much what it's saying is we need to take that middle of the day energy when it's abundant from abundant sunshine and places where there's lots of solar, stick it into a battery perhaps, and then bring it on to the evenings. And a lot of times what's happening now too is places are starting to change their rate structures as solar gets more popular in certain areas and they're making electricity more expensive in the evenings with a time of use rate schedule. So what we're representing is a day where there's not much demand for electricity when the sun is highest in the sky around noon. So it might be before that time of the year where you're cranking up the air conditioning and then solar power is at its best then. Then in the evening, there always tends to be more demand for energy. That's because some people are at home, some people are at work, some people are at the shopping malls, some people are playing video games. People are just doing stuff and they might even have a tendency to want to charge their electric vehicles when they get home. So we need these time of use rates so people will charge their electric cars off peak, like when everybody's sleeping, for instance. That's gonna be a whole chapter in this big book we're gonna write here, John. So what we need to do to get this to start happening right, is we need to get the public utilities commissions to understand all the engineering and things that go on here to make the rates good enough so people will get solar and perhaps to coordinate that solar with energy storage so it's fair for everyone and perhaps even people can get energy storage at their houses that are in the shade or in the bottom story of an apartment building and they can get an energy storage system and they can help out the grid that way. We need more policies. Let's have a protest. Doesn't that sound like fun? Protests can be really fun. You get a whole bunch of people, they're all on the same side of an issue and they're like, yeah, let's do this. As long as they don't get violent or something. So there are other reasons that energy storage can also help a renewable laden grid, such as helping with the power quality when the clouds come over a large solar array and suddenly change things, or when the wind speeds up or slows down suddenly. The biggest reason that utilities use utility scale battery energy storage systems, though, is for something called frequency regulation. I know I've talked about that in some of the different podcasts we have here. When the grid doesn't have enough power, it slows down, and when it has too much power, it speeds up, and so you can compensate with your battery, with your energy storage system, to inject power or to take power away from the grid and charge the battery at the perfect time. And we can even coordinate this very specific from sine wave to sine wave. That's 1 60th of a second is a sine wave on the United States grid, 50 60th, 150th of a second for other grids in other parts of the world far away from here. So another thing just to point out here is most energy storage in the world is pumped hydroelectric where they will pump water up to a higher reservoir at night when a nuclear power plant, for instance, cannot lower its output 
and then release power during the day so people can use it. Nuclear power plants are an example of baseload power where they cannot turn it up or down. Just try that. That's the big problem with nuclear power is if something bad happens, you can't really turn it off. Okay, now back to nuclear fusion. That's right, solar power is fusion. A couple of hydrogen atoms smashing into each other, creating a helium atom, turning some of that mass into energy, you know, like E equals MC squared, Einstein. And so, with that pumped hydroelectric storage that you have on tops of the hills that's already been there for decades because of those nuclear power plants, we can also use the solar plants in tandem there, and it will even help out better because the nuclear power has too much at night, solar has too much in the day, and so we can have something going on that's pretty good. Okay, thanks for that awesome question, John. Batteries and solar, that's where it's at these days. Okay, this question comes from Marcelo Ruiz, and he's obviously a listener to this podcast because he starts off saying lots of great information in your podcasts and classes, specifically for me anyways, supply side versus load side taps. I also thought it was funny that Bill mentioned that he uses Article 480 as a way to get around the code and not a way to implement it. Is it likely that Article 480 of the National Electrical Code will be removed altogether? Thank you, Marcelo, for that great question. And here is my answer. There are many different reasons why the AHJ would enforce National Electrical Code, that's NEC, Article 480, versus Article 706, which is Energy Storage Systems. It is our opinion that you should use Article 706, especially in a building. Article 690, Photovoltaic Systems specifically tells us to use Article 706 when working with photovoltaic systems. The original intention was to get rid of Article 480 in the 2017 National Electrical Code when Article 706 Energy Storage Systems came out. However, at the last minute, there were some people that wanted to keep 480, and here it is to keep Article 480, and here it stays. I'm not sure if they'll ever get rid of 480 now, but if they did get rid of it, Bill would like that for sure. Yeah, that's right. And then we could save 480 for 480 volts. So there's no confusion because that's right. 480 volts is pretty much the highest voltage that comes into like a regular building in the United States. So when you see like a big building, it's probably at 480. I guess, you know, there can be some big giant factories where medium voltage goes in there and medium voltage is thousands of volts. The way that I always remember that Article 480 was for batteries was like 480 volts, is that 48, the first two digits of 480, is like a 48 volt battery system, which is pretty common. That's 12 times four is 48. But let's just go with 706. So much better, Article 706. All right, Marcelo, thanks so much. And thank you, everybody else, for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more about classes and everything else, or to hire me to go and do a live class at your company, like I recently did for some company, and I got to go to this nice and sunny place called Palm Springs, woo! Go and find me at solarsean.com. 